0: So we are in Isaiah still, we will be for quite some time probably, 66 weeks I would guess, just about. Um, we may combine a few chapters but not very many. Uh, Isaiah 2 this evening and just by way of review, I don't want to completely rehash everything that I said at the beginning last week but, um, but a little bit of it and I want to start with a principle that, you guys, that you, sh- you guys and me, we should all be aware of, especially when we're reading things out of the Old Testament. Um, And that principle is this. It's that the narratives, the stories that we read in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the events that happened are not inspired. Now, it's kind of a fine point here, so pay attention. The events are not inspired, okay? The writing about the events, the word that we received, that is inspired. And I see some questioning looks. So, I'll have to spend more time here than I expected. And that's fine because it's a, it's a challenging concept. I'm struggling with it myself a little bit in some ways. But we'll consider this. And here's a good reason why it's important that we're aware of this. If you consider imprecatory psalms uh, like, uh, no, I forgot which one it was. Um, I think it's 137. Anyway, it's, when it's, it's a psalm that was written when they're in Babylon. They're in captivity, and it talks about we hung up our lyres and we hung up our harps because we weren't going to sing about the joys of Zion anymore. And at the end of it, it said, uh, and it's talking about Babylon, and it said, blessed are those who dash your children against the stones. That's pretty severe. It's very imprecatory. I mean, it's, it's desiring uh, vengeance against Babylon because that's exactly what they did to Israel in Jerusalem when they captured them, when they, when they seized the city. There were terrible things happening inside the city already in order to survive. God didn't condone those actions, okay? That's what I mean by the events themselves are not inspired. Now the writing about those events is the way that the authors choose to write, the order that they put things in, the, the wording that they are very carefully selective about how they're writing these things, These are the things I received from God. That's the inspired part. The word that we received is inspired. Is that making sense? Okay. Um, Talk to me afterwards if you're really questioning that because if God condoned everything that happened in the Bible, all of the things that are written about, that would be saying that he condoned everything in human history, essentially, right, or at least all of it that we received. And there are things that happened in here that are just plain evil, I mean, the Bible tells us stories that are not bedtime children's stories, right? It talks about things that are just plain nasty and evil. Those events are not inspired. The actions that happened, right, are not inspired. God's not condoning um, the rape of Tamar. He's not condoning the way that humanity treats each other, the way that we treat each other. But he is telling us something, and he's telling us something very important. Because the way, that, the way that the events are revealed to us through his word is actually inspired. And it's, it's speaking to us in a particular way. It's speaking to us theologically. It's telling us about God, telling us about his character, about who he is, about how he wants us to be, about what it means to be for us, what it means to be a Christian, for them, what it meant to be part of the covenant community, and how they should live. This is what I was talking about last week when I mentioned that that the way that we um, think back on the law, maybe we need to rethink some of this a little bit because it was teaching them how to be God's covenant community and how to dwell with God. And if it was teaching them that, then we can receive some kind of wisdom from it too. Now, I'm not saying we need to go back and live like Jews. That's not what I'm saying at all. That would be against everything that Paul writes in the New Testament, right? Right? Um, so that's not the case. But we can receive wisdom. In fact, we can receive a lot of good wisdom out of the prophets and out of all of the Old Testament in general. Um, so again, if you've got questions about that point, if it's not quite making sense, come talk to me afterwards. Uh, but it's important that we do realize that. That um, Otherwise, it's really difficult to explain some passages in the Bible to people that are look, from the outside looking in going, what kind of a God tells people to dash babies against the rocks, right? I mean, God does not do that. Um, He has allowed it, right? I mean, he's allowed it as discipline, but mostly it's just the evil of humanity being acted out upon other humans. Um, So to recap a few of the things I talked about last week, why do we read the Old Testament? And I'm just going to Buzz through these a little quicker, but same points. Most of these are the same points I made last week because it's the prequel story, right? It's a story that happened before the New Testament. It's a continuation. The New Testament is a continuation of all the things that we read about in the Old Testament. We get the creative story. We get uh, creation. We get the fall. We get the redemptive history, what God's been doing in mankind all the way through the Old Testament, the ways that he's making available to, to be back into relationship with him. Culminating in the New Testament, when he when he brings a new covenant, and instead of giving us rules and regulations about what our outward life should look like, he writes his law on our hearts and starts changing us from the inside. Right, this is the point of the new covenant, um, and then culminating in the redempt the uh, recreation in in uh, Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth. So it's all one long continuous story. This is why it's important for us to spend time in the Old Testament. It's the same religion. Um, it's the outgrowth, or it's an outgrowth of Judaism. It's the culmination of everything in the Old Testament, right? It, all of that's pointing to the New Testament, pointing to Christ in particular. And I said this last week, but their Messiah is our Messiah. It's the same Jesus. It's the same Messiah. They just missed it. They just completely missed him. They didn't recognize him. And I, it's based on faith, not performance, But there is this outworking of our faith which comes, shows itself in obedience. It manifests itself. Our faith manifests itself in obedience to God. Living um, loving the Lord our God with all our hearts, minds, and souls, and loving our neighbors ourselves. That's how our faith manifests itself, which fulfills the law essentially, right? I mean, if you obey those two things, Jesus said you've done well. Um, Or that he said that those are the most important commandments. And again, they perfected the outward appearance of following the law, but that did nothing for them because there was no heart change. Consider, so some of this is new material, some of it's old, right? Consider, this is new. Consider the Beatitudes, what Jesus said. What did he, how did he transform the law in the Beatitudes? He said, You've heard it said, Thou shalt not commit murder. But I say to you that even if You think it. So it's not about the performance of the action. That's like the bare minimum is that you don't go out and kill somebody, right? This is the bare minimum of following that rule or that law, that instruction, really. Um, But the deeper meaning there is that if you're even harboring resentment and hate and and malcontent in your heart and in your mind, you might as well have gone out and killed the person because you've done it internally. And that's just as bad in God's economy. So he took... What they were practicing as this outward expression of God's character. And Jesus said, no, it's actually internal. It's what's coming from inside of you that matters, not what's on the outside. Um, so again, they misunderstood it. They, resisted, re- they received it as a list of do's and don'ts rather than a righteous way of dwelling in God's presence and also bearing witness of God's character to the rest of the nations. That was their purpose. That's why he had the law, the Torah, the instruction for them to show them how to live a set-apart life, do actually dwelling with him or him actually dwelling with them um, and also to bear witness to the rest of the nations of God's goodness and his glory. I mentioned last week also that the Old Testament gives us a better view of the transcendent God, his, the all-powerfulness of God because in the, in the New Testament, speaking of Jesus, we receive him, we see him as a fellow human in so many ways, rightly so, as a friend, he calls us brother, um, fellow heirs. So he represents the imminence, the closeness of God, the personal relationship. But there is also this other side, and it's not a different God, right? It's not like Old Testament God, transcendent, New Testament God, imminent. The same God in both testaments, in both covenants, is both transcendent and imminent, both far away and all-powerful, and yet at the same time close to us, near to the brokenhearted. Um and again, it's this Jesus of peace, this one riding in on the donkey coat that we want to know, that we want to share with other people, because if they haven't met him, the Jesus they are going to meet is the one riding the war horse. And you don't want to meet him without knowing the other Jesus and committing your life to him. Um, I mentioned Timothy 3, 6, 2 Timothy 3.16 last night. Or last week, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That includes everything in the Old Testament, everything in the New Testament. Everything that we consider Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And then here's some new material, just another reason why we read the Old Testament and why it's important that we should look into it and, and understand it as best we can. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. So the Torah, the first five books, or the prophets, all the prophetic books, Isaiah being included in the, pro- the prophets. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, no little mark in the lettering, will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Not booted out, but they'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So it's not about the obedience there, right? Okay, again, it's not about obedience. It's about faith in Christ. Um, But not living in that right manner, you'll be considered least among the... So he's speaking to believers in this, right? Right? Verse 24, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They were pretty darn righteous on the outside. By all appearances, they they had it going on. Um, they were the cool religious people of the day for sure, uh, at least in their own minds. But internally, they were not changed. And our righteousness actually does exceed the scribes and the Pharisees because we've received, if you're walking with Christ, because we've received Jesus' righteousness in place of of our own, which is as filthy rags. Um, So there's great wisdom and insight to be gained by reading the Old Testament. And as we continue our study in Isaiah, it's also important to understand a few things about the prophets uh, in general. What is a prophet? What did they do? What was their job? Um, We often think, and rightly so, we think that prophets... uh, they were people that spoke foreknowledge. They spoke of things to come, things that were going to come to pass. And they certainly did that. That wasn't their primary job. Their primary job was actually to, um, to call the people of Israel, to call the people of the covenant community back to the covenant, to call them back into relationship with God when they've drifted away. When do we usually drift away? When do you guys drift from your trust in, in the Lord? There's there's probably two times, um, two. Uh, Luke, you were, during trials. During trials, yeah, hard times, right? Difficult times for sure. We need reminders of God's goodness, His faithfulness, that we can trust Him when things aren't going well for us. When's when's the other time? Loss. Loss. Okay, that's part of trials. I would I would say it's really just the opposite of hard times or trials or loss is when things are going really well, when we're living in abundance, when we're living in freedom and we have everything we could possibly desire and hope for and, and more, um, when you live in America, essentially. <laughs> um, and I'm not down on America, okay? I'm, I'm so grateful that I was born in this country and so grateful to live in the freedoms that we do. But we really... We take so many things for granted, one of them being the Lord's grace. And it's easy to forget. It's easy to, to, to shift our focus and our trust away from him and on to the things that we receive in America or even on ourselves because of how good we have it. It's like, I must really be doing something well because I've got a good bank account and a good retirement and all these things and life is good. So there are two times when when we tend to drift away. One is when things are, are really going hard and we need people around us to remind us of the Lord's goodness. And the other time is when things are going extremely well and, and that's the time when we need people to say, hey, remember the Lord. Faith and trust there, not in all these things that are going well for you because those are fleeting they're like a candle in the wind, right? I mean, they can be blown out at any moment. That's the kind of environment, that's the kind, of, uh, that's the time frame, actually, that Isaiah is speaking into. Things were going really well for Israel, uh, especially, well, both kingdoms, really, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they were both experiencing a time of, of um, relative safety. They had a fairly strong army under King Uzziah in the south, and um, and they were, they were fairly profitable. I mean, they were, you know, business was good. Inflation was low and business was good. And, and they were doing okay. I mean, they didn't have a lot of concerns or worries in, that, in those moments. And Isaiah is speaking into that saying, listen, things might be going well right now. Uh, financially, uh, the markets are up and things might, the government is strong. The military is doing well, but spiritually, you're bankrupt. And this is what the... the Prophets were continuously reminding them of, whether they were in good times or bad times. He was reminding them, you're spiritually bankrupt. Come back to the covenant. Come back to the Lord. Um, so, so the prophets were the primary voice conveying God's message to his people. Um, they were they were his messengers. Same word is used about them. There's, there's multiple words that are used about them. One is prophet. One is seer. Um, Samuel's called a seer. Uh, another is... Um, uh, uh, messengers. The same word that's used of the angels, um, that they are God's messengers. So, and they're all three translated as, pro- as prophets or as seer throughout the Old Testament. Um, but they're God's primary voice speaking into the covenant community. In the Old Testament, they were pointing people back to the Torah, reminding them of the covenant relationship that they had with God, back to the Mosaic covenant, reminding them that the land, in particular, that the land was a gift from God, that it belonged to Him and that they belonged to Him. And that if their faith and trust drifted, He'd take them out of the land which is exactly what happened in 722 for the northern kingdoms when Assyria came in and, and essentially wiped them out. And then in, by 586, all of the southern kingdoms had also been taken into exile. Um, so again, this time of prosperity and drifting, this is, this is the culture that Isaiah is speaking into. The fact of the matter, though, is that that train had left the station a long time ago. They had quit trusting the Lord. Quite a long time back, this wasn't a new thing. Um, With the exception of a a few good things in the south and a few reforms along the way, there was—if you guys remember this—when we were going through Samuel and and First and Second Kings, there was just a steady downward spiral, especially of the um, spiritual—the spiritual temperature of both the north and the south. Just the south, or the north, happened to spiral a little quicker. They never had any good kings, so they never had any reform. They removed themselves from the covenant community right off, right away. Jeroboam set up the Jeroboam cult, if you remember, he set up a, a worship center in the north and one in the south of the northern kingdom in order to keep people from going to Jerusalem, um, essentially separating them from God and guaranteeing that the, the uh, country didn't reunite again. Um, so this wasn't anything new, but in God's patience, he continually was calling them back, wooing them back, yeah, over and over. He would have been more justified, or he would have been perfectly justified, actually, to have just given up on them long before he did or brought discipline. He didn't give up on them, but he brought discipline upon both the North and the South. Um, and he could have done it long before he did. Uh, so prophets, the primary voice speaking for God, pointing people to the old, back to the Mosaic covenant in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, In the New Testament, in the New Testament, pointing people toward the New Covenant. That would be a modern-day prophet. Essentially, it's what we do when we're preaching, teaching the Word. We're pointing people to the covenant. So we're prophesying, in a sense. We are modern-day prophets. Incidentally, anybody who might claim to be a modern-day prophet beyond, like, what I just said, um, if they're not pointing toward the New Covenant, if they're not pointing towards Jesus as the Messiah, if they're not pointing towards God's Word, ignore them. Don't listen to them. They're not a prophet. Uh, even if things come to pass that they may prophesy about, if they're not speaking about Jesus and glorifying him, you don't need to pay any attention to them. In fact, you should just completely ignore them and, and stay away. The only prophetic voice that we need to pay any real attention to are the voices reminding us of the new covenant, those pointing towards Jesus. Hebrews 1, it said in in, in In many times and in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he speaks to us through the Son. He speaks to us through Jesus. That's the only voice we need to listen to. Anybody pointing us toward Jesus, safe to listen to. Um, So a couple things that are important to understand about the prophetic word uh, of Old Testament prophets. They didn't always speak or write chronologically. We've talked about this. The, the Old Testament in general is not put together chronologically. They didn't. They didn't write stories the way we do. They weren't. They weren't. Uh, not that they weren't detail oriented, but again, this. The, so many of. Well, the Old Testament was put it, put together to lead us in a particular direction theologically, not to give us world history, not to give us every single event that happened, and not to give us things in exact in the exact order that they happened. But with a theological bent in mind to point us towards. God, to point, us toward, to point them toward Yahweh, to point us towards Yahweh, ultimately towards Christ. Um, so, you know, we like, we like lots of details. We like chronology to be in order. We like dates, and we like as many pictures as possible, right? Um, but they didn't have pictures. They actually wrote, because I, I mentioned that they wrote a lot of poetry, a lot of the Old Testament is in poetry, they wrote pictures with words. They painted pictures with words. So um, that's why it's a little challenging for us to read poetry very well because we're a very prose culture, a very prose society. Um, but that is how they wrote. So uh, they tended to blend timelines together, and that tends to drive us a little nuts. Sometimes it causes frustration. It's challenging to understand what's going on. And sometimes it's really it's a struggle to follow uh, chronologically or logically, even, the order that's going on. Um, have you ever been out in the woods? I mean, is that a silly question, being in Southern Oregon? Probably a little bit, right? Well, consider when you're out hiking, and, or horseback riding, or snowmobiling, whatever it might be, out hunting, and you're, you're at a high point, um, someplace where you can see well, right, out across the horizon. Even, like, men's backpacking trip just happened, it's like, hey, we can just hike over to that next peak and go up to the top of it, it's not that far away. And it doesn't seem that far. I mean, the perspective doesn't necessarily seem that far, right, until you get down into the valley and you discover just how deep it is and how many little other hills there are in the way and how many big rock bluffs there might be in the way. And and then, you know, as you're in the middle of it, you start to to realize just how far apart that other peak that you were looking at is. And the farther removed you are from those, like I was noticing today as I was driving back in into town that You know, you can see multiple hills and they all just kind of blend together. It looks like one hillside. But if you got closer to them, you'd realize, you know, that there's multiple peaks and valleys there and they're very far away. Prophecy is very similar to that. It's really difficult to see how much time there is between events that are spoken of. We think... We see two or three events, we read it in in a little short blurb, and we think, well, those things must have happened, boom, 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 or they need to happen, boom, boom, boom. Not necessarily the case. That's not how the prophetic word was written. It's not how the prophets wrote. Uh, It's not how much of the Old Testament is written, in fact. Um, the, The prophetic timelines are a lot like that picture I'm trying to paint about the mountains. It's challenging to know when events will come, Uh, and it can be difficult to separate events we expect to happen in a nice orderly fashion. I've mentioned this passage before, but uh, turn, you're in Isaiah, turn towards the back of Isaiah to Isaiah 61. You might recall in Luke chapter 4, verse 17, it says that Jesus was, he's in the synagogue in Nazareth, Nazareth and they they hand him the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read and he he reads this right out of Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Boom, he stops right there. Well, the sentence doesn't stop right there. The passage doesn't end right there. It goes on and talks about the day of the Lord's vengeance. Uh, but Jesus didn't come to bring the day of the Lord's vengeance then. There's, there's, well, how long has it been? 22,023 years? Minus 30. So 1,990 some years, right, since, since the crucifixion? Um, so there's at least 1,900 years, 1,900, almost 2,000 years between, between those two lines in our Bible, right? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus came and continues, actually, to proclaim to this day through his word, through us, proclaiming his goodness, proclaiming um, the year of the Lord's favor. But the next time he comes, that's the day of the vengeance of our God. So we have no idea the time frame. Is that making sense? The time frame that's between those two lines in our Bible. Um, you would expect it to just be boom, boom, boom. But no, there's a huge gap there. This happens in other places as well. Um, it's not unusual. Uh, but we need to understand that in order to be able to receive God's word well. Um, another feature... One that will one that we'll see in tonight's passages is uh, a f- well. Flashbacks happen, right? Or flash forwards? You see those in movies. It's a it's a great tool to fill in gaps, to fill in about characters, uh, maybe to fill in timelines, just to give backstory, right? Uh, well, in this case, uh, oftentimes the the uh, prophetic word will flash forward to a future event, and then it may come right back into the modern times or the the immediate timeline. And again, it's, it's difficult to see that or to decipher that, um, especially if you're just blowing through the passages, if you're not slowing down and taking some time in them or not you know, reading very carefully and understanding that uh, this is happening. We're gonna see that tonight. This, this section, actually we're only doing chapter two, but this section goes from chapter two through uh, all the way through chapter four. And the layout of those three chapters is you've got this hopeful future that hasn't happened yet, followed by the reality of how Jerusalem and Judah really is, uh, and then followed by, in, in uh, chapter 4, again, the glorious future that is coming, that will come to be. Um, so there's a flash forward, back to reality, and then a flash forward again to the hope of the future. And we're only going to look at a short chunk of it tonight. But um, that, hap- that, again, that also happens throughout, uh, especially in the prophets. Another common occurrence or element of the prophets you should be aware of is that there's oftentimes a near and a far fulfillment. I think Pastor Rob mentioned this in the introduction, the overview for Isaiah. There'll be a a prophetic word given and there'll be an immediate fulfillment of that word. Oftentimes it doesn't completely fulfill everything about it, which is pointing toward a future fulfillment, a fuller realization of what's being said. Uh, And the the famous one is Isaiah 9, right? When he talks about a child shall be given to us. There's an immediate fulfillment of that. One of Isaiah's kids is probably the immediate fulfillment to that prophecy. But then Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment to that prophecy, Uh, which is pretty obvious because the, uh, I mean... Isaiah's child didn't bring about world peace. Didn't, you know, the, the, the government didn't rest on his shoulders, and he wasn't the eternal father and prince of peace and all of these uh, titles that we would, we would associate with the Lord. Um, so this near and far fulfillment happens quite often also, not in every prophecy, but in many of them. Um, and you'll pick up on this as, you're, as you read ahead. You are reading ahead, right, in Isaiah? Yeah, Let me encourage you to do that. It'll help a lot if you're reading ahead regularly. At least read what we're going to be in next week, which is going to be one chapter at a time for the most part. But if you're reading small sections and just staying ahead of us and even rereading some, it'll help a lot in, in um, understanding what's going on. And you'll get more out of our Wednesday night times together. Um, so I encourage you to do that. But you'll, you'll read things. You'll see things. You'll pick up on things that, that uh, you'll actually see prop prophetic word happening and then you'll see fulfillments where it's like oh yeah that's they were just talking about that two chapters ago but there's something that just doesn't quite sit right because maybe it, it's not um you know there was a lot of details in this prophecy and not all of those happened you know some of the details did but not all of them uh, you'll recognize those things you'll also you'll read things and you'll go that sounds just like jesus Sounds just like the story I remember from, you know, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, whatever, something in the New Testament. Um, absolutely, you're, you're catching on. That's exactly what should be happening as you're reading through Old Testament, seeing some of these prophecies being fulfilled in Christ, for sure, and others that it's like, well, that hasn't happened yet. In fact, we're going to see one of those tonight, um, something that hasn't happened yet. There's maybe a, probably a partial fulfillment of it, but it hasn't come to pass completely. Um, So, again, the prophet's primary job, calling the people of Israel, calling the covenant people back to the covenant relationship or else. Remember the, the three main, uh, the thrust of the prophets is, Israel, you have broken the covenant. Repent. No repentance, then judgment. But there is still hope, both for you and for the nations, a future hope and a future glory. Okay, let's get into the word. Isaiah two is where we'll be. There again, there's a hopeful and a distant prophecy here, followed by some intermediate prophetic judgments, and then again, the section ends in chapter four with another hopeful but future prophecy. We're only looking at chapter two, but we are going to see, or what we are going to see here, is a glimpse into the future, a reminder, and then a reminder right after that of how things really are, and some advice on who to trust, okay? So we'll start, let's read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah the son of Amoz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the Lord of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's stop there for a moment and talk through some of these things. I said this is a future event, right? Um, because it's talking about Yahweh sitting on the throne judging the nations and, and everybody coming to Jerusalem, right, to learn his ways. Has that happened? No. Safe to say no. Um, <laughs> yeah, far from, right? Um, so let's look at a few things that it talks about here. Latter, latter days. So it's, it's again, it's projecting into the future. It's talking about the end times. It's talking about uh, the last days, later days, days still to come for sure at the very least. Um, but it shall come to pass, it says, and it says that the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. So I, if you've been to, I have not been there, but Jerusalem, the hill that it sits on, is not the highest mountain in the region. Uh, there are other higher mountains around it. There certainly are many, many, many higher. It's like a hill. There are higher mountains in the Rogue Valley. Uh, Roxyan is probably close to as high, geographically, in one. It's maybe not elevation-wise, but um, so there's nothing that impressive about the mountains there. How can they say that, or how can he say that the mountains of the house of the Lord are going to be established in the highest of all the mountains? Well, maybe there's going to be a great big earthquake and it's going to end up being the highest peak. I have no idea. That's possible, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's talking about a seat of government, a seat of power. Um, he's talking about the Lord's kingdom, about Yahweh's kingdom being on earth and... and um, that it will be established as the place to go. It'll be lifted above all other hills, all other, all other governments, all other systems that are happening. This one will be elevated. Everybody will know that's the place to go. That's the place to go to find truth. That's the place uh, to meet God, the only place to find God, to meet God. Um, not in the sense that he's om- not omniscient and not everywhere. Okay, I'm not saying it that way, but that's the place to go. That's the center of religious worship is Jerusalem and the hill there. Um, and, and many peoples will come and they'll encourage their neighbor and say, come, let us go up to the mountains of the Lord and uh, the nations will flow to it. Now, I asked if, if we've seen any kind of fulfillment of this. Actually, I actually would submit that we have seen a little bit of fulfillment, at least of the first half of it here in Pentecost. If you remember, the disciples... Um, Jesus' followers were speaking in, in tongues. They were speaking in known languages that other people were hearing. So the nations, even at that time, the nations were coming to Jerusalem and the word of the Lord went out from there. So there's at least this beginning, this idea of a beginning of this happening, but there's a future fulfillment. Revelation 20 is when all of this happens, I, I think. My view would be that the millennial reign when the Lord comes and establishes His kingdom on earth for a thousand years, this prophecy will be completely fulfilled. Um, Yahweh will sit on the throne and look at the things he's going to bring. You see him in verse 5. He's going to judge between the nations. So he's going to bring justice. He's going to bring peace and he's going to bring an end to the idea of war. No more battles. They're going to they're beat their, their weapons into plowshares. Um, so no more war. No more talk about war. No, no more learning about war. And then in verse 5, we hear, we see a plea to return to the ways of the Lord. Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Uh, This is the prophet calling them back to the Lord, calling them back to the covenant, right? Because now he's going to to jump right in and say, this is the reality of how things actually are. You're a mess, essentially, is what it says in 6 through 22. Let's read through it. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune-tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Um, and their, their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust. From before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon... Lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground and before the, uh, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the rats, or to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and to the clefts of the cliffs, and from the terror of the... Lo- from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Isn't that refreshing? <laughs> Speaking of judgment here, it's like no repentance. He calls them to repentance in verse 5. and calls them to return to the paths of the Lord. And then it's like, okay, no repentance? Well, here's judgment that's coming. Here's, what, here's how things really are right now, and here's, here's the judgment that is coming. Here's, the, uh, um, here's what the Lord's bringing because of your disobedience. So walking or working our way back through here, things from the east, it talks about things from the east there in verse 6. There's this idea that everything east of Eden, because the Lord banned Adam and Eve out of Edom and sent them east, that this is a picture of heading toward evil, headed, headed toward uh, things that are moving away from God. Moving east is moving away from God. That's why we all live on the West Coast, right? If only that, if only that were true. <clears throat> it's why we live in the Rogue Valley. <laughs> it's why we come to church, to be closer to God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, but seriously, this idea of, of moving away from God is is things of the east. Uh, there's also, consider the things that are east of, of uh, Jerusalem, right? You've got um, Assyria really is kind of to the north, but it's also north and east. You've got Babylon, which is almost a direct shot east, and that was kind of the center. Think Revelation. It's like the center of uh, everything anti-God, right? Um, Babylon. So uh, things of the east have infected you and have come. fortune tellers like the Philistines... There was this part of the reason I walked through, talked about what prophets were, is there was this idea that prophets were um, like ecstatics, right? That they they went into these tremors, that they were uncontrolled. They they went into these uncontrollable fits, I guess, because they were taken over by a spirit, right? And a lot of people thought this is what prophets should be like. Well, consider Elijah. I mean, remember the the story of Elijah and the, the prophets of Baal? And they're all slashing, cutting themselves and crying out and nothing's happening. The, the contest up on, on the mountain, right? And they're calling on Baal to come and, and uh, consume the offering that they've made. And this goes on for hours and hours and Elijah is just kind of like taking a nap, right? Like, maybe you're not speaking loud enough. Maybe they haven't heard, maybe, maybe you need to wake your gods up. Um, making fun of them, right? And, and they finally get done and Elijah goes, Lord, please just... And it happens, right? Because prophets are not ec- ec- ecstatics, ecstatics. It's, it's, uh, they're normal people just speaking God's word. Now some of them are a little weird, like John the Baptist, or, but still, um, he was not an ecstatic. Uh, there was no ecstasy involved in, in him bringing God's word, right? So this is what the fortune tellers of the Philistines would be like. They're... Uh, they're maybe reading bones or reading your palm or whatever, reading tea leaves, uh, fortune-telling. And this has also invaded. This has also come, become part of uh, uh, Israel, part of the community, and that's why he's speaking against it. Uh, and where it says they're striking their hands with the children of foreigners, they strike hands with the children of foreigners, they're, going to, they're making covenants with foreign nations. They're making covenants with people they should not be. They've broken the covenant that they had with God And they're making covenants with their neighbors, uh, which was strictly prohibited. Um, Either making very direct covenants or, you know, like maybe blood pledges. You've seen in them where they, it's like you either spit in your hand and shake hands on something. That's a covenant. You're making an agreement with somebody. Um, So something along these lines is happening. Their land is filled with silver and gold. You're trusting in wealth and power, he's saying. Uh, just, they wanted to be just like their neighbors. I mentioned that last week. They wanted to be just like their neighbors. So their lands are filled with gold and silver. Let's trust in that kind of power, in that kind of wealth, in that kind of uh, treasure. And their land is filled with horses and chariots. That represents the, the strongest military of the day, chariots in particular. It's um, that like the B-52 bombers of today Or the, you know, the stealth bombers It's like that was the cream of the crop If you had chariots, you were going to be hard to beat in battle God prohibited them In Deuteronomy, he says Don't multiply your chariots, don't multiply your horses Don't multiply your wives either He told, and of course that, that was Solomon's huge downfall, right? Too many um, Too many wives One is plenty One is great Um their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, <laughs> to what their own fingers have made. Isaiah makes God through Isaiah, but Isaiah, the words, he makes fun of, he's very snarky about the idols, especially later on in Isaiah. He says, "Look, what? what? You made this thing with your own hands. You crafted it. You crafted this thing out of silver or wood or whatever, and now you bow down and worship it? You know, one, of my, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is in uh, 1 Samuel 5 and because of time, you don't need to turn there. But if, if you want to write it down, I think it's a great story. It's when the Ark of the Covenant gets taken by the Philistines. And uh, they take it and they put it in their temple where Dagon is. And the next morning, God's got a sense of humor. He's got to. Because the next morning they come out and Dagon's laying on the ground, essentially worshiping, bowed down, <laughs> before the Ark of the Covenant. Um, So they go in, and it's like, oh, we got to stand our God back up. They stand Dagon back up and maybe nail his feet to the floor this time. And and the next day, Dagon is on his face again. In fact, his head comes off the second time, I think, if I remember right. But one of my favorite stories, it's uh, God has definitely got some snarkiness and some humor and just the irony going on there. Um, So again, here, he's making, it's like they've got these idols that they've made with their hands, and, and they're, you're worshiping them. What is wrong with you? You know? Uh, we even look back at that. We don't tend to make idols with our hands, but uh, you've heard this plenty of times, but we, we have our own idols, right? Maybe not made by our hands, but made by our culture, made by our society. Uh, so we can't, we can't laugh too hard at them because we put our hope and trust in a lot of things that, that are also fleeting, um, So, and they exalt themselves here. Uh, You can tell that because they're trusting in all these things. And then verse 9, it says, So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Uh, Somewhere it's written that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and brought low, right? Here's an example of it. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Uh, You'll be, if we're humbling ourselves, we'll be exalted before the Lord. We'll share in His glory. We'll enter into His glory along with Him and, and be exalted in that way. Um, so here because they're haughty because they're, they're not humble they will be brought to a place of humbleness and all of these things that they thought were going to protect them um, will, will be shown to be worthless just like the work of their hands everything you think that brings security and protection from verse 13 all of your 401ks all your democratic freedoms um, all your tanks, F16s, MIGs, whatever, your survival bunker, all your freeze dried food that you 've got stored up, all that ammunition you 've been hoarding, um, none of that is going to save you. The haughtiness of man will absolutely be humbled now i 've mentioned before that i 'm not against being prepared, okay We have a, some food stores built up in our underground bunk, no, not an underground bunker, so. <laughs> If you have an underground bunker, we should talk, because I am keeping a list of addresses of people that have good food stores better than mine. And no, Nothing wrong with being prepared uh, for natural disasters, nothing wrong with being prepared for government meltdown, whatever might come in our future, but really those things aren't going to save us. They might be a stopgap measure for a few days, a few months maybe, maybe a year. But much beyond that, it's like... <sighs> None of, we're just not equipped. None of us are equipped to survive in that kind of world. And that's not where our trust should be anyway. Our trust needs to be in the Lord. He's going to sustain us. He will give us our provision that we need to be here as long as he deems we should be here, um, whether that's a few days, a few years, or a few months in any kind of storm that might happen in our world, right? Um, so every, every idolatrous system you could possibly put any hope in or trust in is going to pass away. And then, uh, so that's essentially verse 6 through verse 19. Um, and because, well, the verses right before that, 18, 19. Because all of those things are passing away, people are going to be hiding in caves. And does this sound familiar too? I mean, this sounds a lot like some things that it talks about in uh, Revelation and I think in Ezekiel where it says you're going, to, you're going to cry out and be wishing that the rocks would just fall on you and put you out of your misery, right? And this is the kind of judgment that's coming against those who are in disobedience to God and in particular here it's speaking to the nation of Israel. Um, Verse 20, the moles and the bats, there was kind of interesting. It's all of these things you've put your hope and trust in, they're gonna be scattered to the the rodents, the most unclean animals imaginable, the rodents, the bats, the rats, the the moles. Uh, Your gold and your treasures and everything, your stored up food, the rats are gonna eat it, the bats are gonna get it. All of these things, which uh, they'll they'll be swallowed up by that which is reviled, essentially. And then finally, in verse twenty-two, says the idea here is all of us are one simple breath away from death. Um, So stop putting your trust in mankind. God is saying, Isaiah is saying, stop putting your trust in mankind. You can't even we can't even control. I mean, we breathe because we just do, right? We don't think about it. It just happens. Same thing's going to happen when we stop breathing at some point in time. It's just going to happen. And there's nothing we can do about it. You know, it's in the Lord's hands. So put your hope and trust there. The threefold message, again, that we talked about in the prophets, um, with just a slight modification, I think it applies to us very well, and it goes something like this in the New Covenant. It's so... Christian friend, be encouraged by this. If, if you're a non-Christian and you're here, take this to heart. This is what you need. You need a covenant with God. You need a covenant with God. That's the only way he deals with people is through a covenant relationship. So you better repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. No faith in Christ, judgment is coming. Probably soon. There is a glorious hope of eternal life within this new covenant. And only within this new covenant for all who come to the Lord and eternal damnation for all who don't. Verse 22 is pointing us back to verse 5. Are you going to trust the things of man? Again, we're so fragile that the simple act of breathing is outside of our control. Or are you going to walk in the light of the Lord? Brothers and sisters, let us go forth walking in the light of the Lord, inviting everyone in our path to join us on that journey. Amen? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful um, for the prophets who continually called the people in the covenant community back to you, to reminding them of the covenant relationship that they were in, and, and really pleading with them to return to your path, to return to good things. Uh, to return to the Lord. Father, we receive that call in our lives today. You're doing the same thing to those, anybody in the sound of my voice that doesn't know you, you're calling them to join into this covenant community. And for those of us who have put our faith and trust in you, you're reminding us that we really do belong to you, that um, you really do expect some things out of us. You expect our faith and our trust, and, and uh, we put our all of our eggs in that basket, all of our hope in that, Lord. And that manifests in our lives through obedient behavior, through submitting to the king, through listening to you and doing the things that you've told us to do, Lord. Um, so, Father, please continue to do that work internally because, as is often said around here, Pastor Rick always said, our wanters are broken, and definitely our wanters are broken. Please fix them, Lord. Help us to want the right things, uh, to want the things that... that uh, help us to seek after you, that put us on the path of the Lord, that put us on your path. We are uh, thankful for the word that guides us in that way, thankful for the voices in our lives, Lord, that point us back toward you, and um, really in kind of a cool sense, making us prophets. So Father, help us now as a community, as a group, to go forth and to prophesy, proclaiming your goodness, proclaiming the eternal life eternal gift of life that you grant us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.